This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Please take your Bibles and let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Lord willing, we'll read this text tonight. I hope, too, that you'll take some notes. We're continuing a series on covenant theology and some of the results of what covenant reform theology has done, uh, how it's affected the church. And so for several weeks we've been in a series on that, seeking to combat the errors and subsequent effects that it has had on the church. And it's something that has now affected the church for hundreds of years, literally. I've defined for us the dispensational system of theology and the covenant view as well. Dispensational theology makes a clear distinction between the church and Israel. It interprets the Bible, what? Literally not allegorically, and it declares that the underlying purpose of God is His glory. Now, both sides would say that. Both have creeds that say that. But we emphasize the fact that God didn't send Christ primarily to save man. If you understand what your Bible teaches... He sent the Lord Jesus to restore man to a place where he could fulfill his creative purpose, which is to bring glory to God. In fact, when you get to the end of the New Testament, uh, the focus is the fact that everything is placed under Christ's feet and then ultimately God is glorified by it all. Okay, Covenant theology heirs in that it puts too much emphasis on human logic. Later we'll look at examples like Augustine, Calvin. And it selectively interprets Scripture literally when it fits their theological system. Now we have to be cautious that we maintain our literal interpretation uh, and that we don't follow someone's thinking in a particular area. We've got to be careful not to do that ourselves. The only time, though, that we recognize that there is allegory, there are metaphors in Scripture, are those times when the Lord clearly tells us that that's what He's doing. There's a reason that the word parable is in the Bible. Okay, and then uh, other areas, other times when the Lord... Uh, clearly is using figurative language. And so tonight, we started out singing in our worship to the Lord, Some Golden Daybreak. Do you believe in a literal rapture of the church? I hope so. It's what the Bible teaches. 
The real question for us is, how often do we stop and think about the literal rapture of the church? I'm sure you all had busy days today. Did you take time to think about that? There is coming a time in your near future and mine where either the Lord's going to take us home because something's going to happen with this body or something else is going to happen so fast that it will you will be in heaven before it ever registers what took place. In fact, let me back up. You'll be in the clouds before it registers what took place. The twinkling of an eye. I believe the Lord would have us to live in that reality. Those who have this hope within them purify themselves, even as he is pure. If you thought that in the next 10 minutes you were really going to meet Jesus, would it change you? Now, I won't ask you to raise your hands with this question, but those of you that have been saved a while, have you ever had an experience where something happened and you thought, uh-oh, I got left. <laughs> now let's be honest. The fact you're chuckling. Now I know I'm saved. But I've had those times. I walk into the house and it's like, all right, where is everyone, right? Okay. God doesn't want that to be a negative or something fearful. He wants us to anticipate that and to rejoice in it. But you and I have to also have a firm biblical foundation for why we believe that. And there are fellow Christians, I'll be honest, fellow Christians who not only don't believe it, there are Christians that have never heard of it because of the churches that they've been raised in. I want to be careful what I say, but I, I serve with other pastors in the city who are fellow chaplains. And they all are not independent Baptists. Quite literally, some of them have theological systems where in the end it's just it's just all going to work out and and um, and then they've got their various versions of eschatology and what really is going to happen. One of those recently, uh, a fellow uh, dispensationalist pastor talked to uh, one of these men, and they had not heard of dispensationalism when well, they weren't sure what the rapture was. Leading flocks of Christians, professing Christians. I mean, that, that may take us back, but there is a historical reason why that has happened. And I want to share some more of that with you tonight. And, and again, hopefully, by God's grace, ground us in, to know why we believe what we believe. Well, my grandmother believed the rapture. Well, that's not good enough. You have to know what God says about that. So, let's continue our study and examine how these impact these systems impact the doctrine of end times eschatology, specifically the matter of the rapture of the church. 
which, by the way, becomes the center of the debate. If you ever are feeling encouraged and want to get discouraged, just look this up online and, and see what's being said about it. There's some really negative things said about those of us who believe the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ. But you don't have to be pressured by that because what you believe, if you believe that, is what the Bible teaches. Charles Ryrie summarized the debate this way, quote, The distinction between Israel and the church leads to the belief that the church will be taken from the earth before the beginning of the tribulation, which is one ma in, in one major sense concerns Israel. Now, let me just pause. He's right. When the church gets raptured away, does anything happen with Israel? Yes or no? How many of you have heard of the time of Jacob's trouble? What seven-year period does that happen in? The great tribulation, the tribulation, the great one. All right? Halfway through. Pre-tribulationalism has become a part of dispensational eschatology. Originally, this was due to the emphasis of the early writers and teachers on the imminency of the return of the Lord. Hence, I've had you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. But Ryrie goes on, more lately it has been connected with the dispensational conception of the distinctiveness of the church. And quote, what's he referring to? We are not spiritual Israel. I'm going to do something in the message that I don't normally do, and that is I want to take two statements from Ryrie's quote and use them as the actual outline for the message. Though my teaching will obviously, I want it to come from the Word of God. So I've entitled the message, the message tonight, The Certainty of a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. Certainty. Ryrie states originally, and he's referring to the pre-tribulational view, was due to the emphasis of the early writers of Scripture and teachers on the imminency of the return of the Lord. In other words, not only did the human writers of Scripture teach the pre-tribulation view, but those who followed them taught it as well. Now, in my interaction with those who favor Reformed theology, I have heard statements, literally this was said to me, quote, the pre-tribulation rapture was unheard of for the first 1,800 years of church history. It was first taught by men like Darby in the 1830s and C.I. Schofield, end quote. So, it's new, it must not be true. All right, but when that was said to me, I had to look at him and say, that is simply not true, that's inaccurate. Here's what we need to understand. Early church fathers taught a pre-tribulation rapture. Many today will try to tell us that the idea of the pre-trib rapture did not uh, become popular again until John Darby, 1800s, talked about it in his prophecy manual, The Morning Watch. However, early church historians tell us otherwise. 
William Newell wrote in his book on Revelation, quote, The early church for 300 years looked for the imminent return of our Lord to reign, and they were right, end quote. Henry Thiessen, in his introduction to his lectures in systematic theology, said, quote, it is clear that the fathers held not only the premillennial view of Christ's coming, but also regarded that coming as imminent. The Lord had taught them to expect his return at any moment, and so they looked for him to come in their day. Not only so, but they also taught his personal return as being immediately, with the exception of the Alexandrian fathers, who also rejected other fundamental doctrines, end quote. So the, there were the Alexandrian fathers, but they were, they were struggling with other clear doctrines in the Scripture. So we dismiss them, but the others taught the imminent return of Christ. Now at the end of that 300 years of the church, there was one final voice that you probably won't recognize. Let me give you his name. Ephraim the Syrian. He was out of Syria. His name was Ephraim. He lived from 303 to 373. He was 70 years old when he died. In the 1990s, some of Ephraim's writings were translated into English for the first time. One of those being what he wrote, and here's the title of it, On the Last Times, the Antichrist and the end of the world. He wrote it just before he died. The translation was done by Professor Cameron Rhodes, Tyndale Theological Seminary, at the request of Grant R. Jeffrey. It was then published in Jeffrey's 1995 book, Final Warning. So Jeffrey's had this translation done because he was searching out what did the early fathers really believe? What did they teach? Because he was writing a book about the imminent return of Christ. It was obvious that Ephraim believed in a literal fulfillment of prophecy, including a rapture, the rapture of New Testament saints prior to the tribulation. Listen to what Ephraim wrote. Quote, for all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins, end quote. It was obvious that this man taught that the saints will be raptured up so they will not see the strong deceit that will overcome the world under Antichrist which is exactly what Paul taught 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 3 to 9. Let's go to chapter 5. I think I told you the wrong chapter. But look at chapter 5, verse 3. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then suddenly destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others. Let us watch and be sober, 
For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by or through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now question, what is the theme the one, there are other themes, but the main theme of 1 Thessalonians. And in fact, it's reinforced, this theme is reinforced in 2 Thessalonians. What is it? It's this, Jesus has not already come back and you were left behind. People were teaching that in the way, the way they pronounce it today, Thessaloniki. Okay? That, people were teaching that. And believers were, were, oh no, the rapture has happened and we're still here. And there were plenty of things happening in the empire that they could look to and say, we're, we're during, this is during the tribulation. What was happening? Well, you had somebody who was an antichrist claiming to be God running the empire. You also had catastrophic events happening on earth. Uh, those of you that have been to Israel with us, we were to Greece and Turkey, is there any evidence over there of earthquakes? Everywhere. How many of you have heard of Pompeii? Volcanoes burying cities. Okay. And so somebody... This always amuses me. Somebody is teaching, we've, we've been left behind. Well, if you're teaching that, you were left behind too. But they were teaching it in direct opposition to what the apostles had already taught. Now, Ephraim was, ready, was already bucking the allegorical tendencies of other church fathers, Oregian and others, and I, I, I've talked about that. When... Ephraim died, Augustine was 19 years old. At that point, he's living a decadent life. Augustine is going to be converted. He's going to come to Christ. But after, and he's a brilliant man, after he is converted, because of how other church fathers were allegorizing the scripture, he took it to another whole level. He popularized the allegorical interpretation of Scripture and helped bring in the spiritual blindness that was the Dark Ages under the Roman Church. Tim LaHaye is written, uh, or I'm sorry, Tim LaHaye was right when he wrote in 1992, quote, while the church of the first three centuries did not label this resurrection of, the, of dead believers uh, and translation of living Christians the rapture, and he's saying, they didn't call it the rapture. They did anticipate it. And even during the Dark Ages, when literal interpretation of the Bible was eclipsed, some still anticipated the imminent translation of the church. Now fast forward to the 1600s and 1700s. Because remember, really, this whole idea of a pre-trib rapture, it really didn't come around until the 1800s. Okay, well, let's go to the 16 and 1700s, okay? What was being taught, and we have church history on this too. 
the pre-trib rapture was also taught during that time. Chuck Missler has documented, quote, in teaching uh, it, was teaching on the pre-trib rapture, the church, shows up in the approaching deliverance of the church by Peter Jarrow, 1687, Philip Dodge-Ridge's commentary on the New Testament, 1738, Dr. John Gill's commentary on the New Testament, on 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, 1784, or 48. James McKnight's commentary on the Apostolic Epistles, 1763. And Thomas Scott's commentary on the Holy Bible, 1792. So he establishes over and over in these commentaries strong preachers who were orthodox or right in their theology. That's what they were teaching a pre-trib rapture. So to say that the teaching about pre-tribulation rapture is something new in the church is not to know the facts. I believe the church was still working its way out of theological errors and blind spots of the Reformation. That certainly was happening. But pre-trib teaching was also taking place. Now, though this, I hope, has been a help to you, and, and we've waded into the, into the weeds a little bit, okay? But you need to know the reality of it. And not just these dismissive statements, well, yeah, you, you guys are all following people from the 1800s and on, and this, this was all new. No, it wasn't. Next time we're together, though, we're going to take a deep dive into what the Scripture teaches about a pre-trib rapture. Okay? And it's going to thrill your heart as we consider such things as the doctrine of imminence, the work of the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, and what he's doing now. And then... Just the doctrine of the church. Let me whet your appetite. Do you know that after Revelation chapter 3, you don't read about the church in the book of Revelation again until chapters 19 and 22? At that time, you read that they're, chapter 22, in white robes before the throne. And then consider this, chapter 19. When it comes to evangelization that takes place on earth during the seven-year tribulation, does the Lord call on the church to make sure they're busy doing the Great Commission? Who is sent out across the world during the tribulation to evangelize at that point? It's not the church. You said it. That's 144,000 Jewish missionaries. How did they come to Christ? The witness, not of the church, two witnesses who are preaching in Jerusalem right under the nose of Antichrist and the false prophet. These are saved, these 144,000 Jewish witnesses 12,000 12, from every tribe in Israel. 
They go, out, go throughout the earth and they evangelize. No mention of the church. So the doctrine of the church is what it is. We want to share with you some scripture to help you see. There it is. All right. Let's stand together. Our time is up. Thank you for listening so well. Father, thank you for the clear teaching of your word. Again, we acknowledge that there are passages, Lord Jesus, where you even taught places like Matthew 24, 25, where based on comparing Scripture with Scripture, sometimes it's hard to, to understand what the exact timeline is. But Lord, we also know that when it comes to interpreting our Bibles, we interpret the more difficult passages through the clearer passages, the ones that are easier to understand. And Lord, thank you that in our systematic theology, we can compare truth with truth and come to the realization, the reality, that the next thing, Lord, on your prophetic timeline is to catch away your church. And so, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing that our time is short, that when that trumpet sounds, we will never again have an opportunity to try to lead a, a lost person to you. Lord, help us to be busy in these days sharing the good news. Keep us safe as we head to our homes tonight. And uh, Lord, help us to live in reality of the rapture. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.